the country came together, the United States, through an accident of history, right? There was a, a shared threat in the 1770s to the way that all of these separate nations, if you will, or regional cultures uh, had governed themselves. They all had their own ways of doing things. And uh, London wanted to centralize and standardize the empire. So they rose up to defend their own ways. Lo and behold, they won. And that meant that they were inside something called the United States. And nobody was quite sure what that was. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for a new episode of Pantsu Politics. Today we're going to talk about the redistricting process happening around the country in advance of this year's congressional midterms. As part of that conversation, we are really excited to have author and journalist Colin Woodard here. He's done some fascinating work about the different geographic regions in America and what that means for our politics. We know you're going to love that conversation. Then we'll talk more about where the process is today and how we're approaching the midterm races here outside of politics. We'll update you on my COVID situation. I I think I have a very unexpected and helpful television recommendation to offer anyone who's suffering through this. Before we get started, we wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who shared Friday's episode on five things you need to know about the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. It is a very big deal to us when you share our conversations with people in your lives, and it is by far the best way to grow the show. There's been a lot of writing lately about how hard this industry is and how hard it is right now, especially for news and politics shows. And we say this all the time, but we really, really mean it. We are able to do this work because of your support. So thank you so much for sharing and tagging us and talking about the episodes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
This year, every member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election. That is required by the Constitution right up front. Article 1, Section 2 tells us that members of the House must be chosen every second year by the people of the several states. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We're going to work our way into the details of how congressional districts are drawn and how members are elected. But we wanted to start with the big picture, thinking about what we know about the country right now and the factors that influence elections in different areas of the country. It might be weird to start a conversation about districts with this conversation with Colin Woodard about regions, but I think it is incredibly helpful because I think it's easy in these conversations about gerrymandering to get in a very us-them, we're right, they're wrong, they're the enemy, they're trying to gain the system, we're on the side of right. And I think what Colin Woodard does is give this incredibly helpful perspective and add all these layers to each region of the country so that we don't get consumed by the political lines, but can really see the influence of these regional lines. So he is a New York Times bestselling author of six nonfiction works, including American Nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. He is a Polk award-winning journalist, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and respected authority on the sociology of the United States nationhood. In his new book, Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of the United States nationhood is about the urgent creation of a myth to convince us all that we are all one people of one background, but we are not. And that is what Colin and I talk about in this conversation. Colin, welcome to the show. We are so thrilled to have you. It's my great pleasure. Well, let me tell you, I first read American Character, the epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good, which shockingly enough, you wrote before the pandemic. (laughs) Yes, just before the pandemic. And in fact, it's a book that came out just a few weeks before Donald Trump clinched the Republican nomination. So it was a weird timing to have a book that was pre-Trump emerge right when Trumpism began. So it was a funny timing for that book all the way around. But it is hyper relevant now as we consistently talk about individual liberty and the common good. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a book talking, you know, warning about the instability in America's democracy and uh, and the things that would have to be done to stabilize us, you know, sort of warned iceberg ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the book came out and we struck the iceberg as it was coming out. And everyone's been sort of chasing after lifeboats since. But if we are to uh, right ourselves and make sure we don't strike icebergs in the future, there are some important lessons in it. I loved it. And as a part of this book, you do like a, a summary of your previous book, American Nations, where you really laid out these regions of the country. And it really just broke my brain wide open. I thought, oh, this is it. This is why we're always so frustrated with each other because we have these, I think you have 11 different regions of the country and how that plays out culturally, historically, why sometimes when you feel like you go to another part of the country, you're in a, in a different country. And I think it's so helpful especially as we enter election season, you know, we're going to start looking at house races to try to understand places at a more granular level, but I actually think Mm -hmm. the way you've organized it at a very macro level is incredibly helpful. So tell us about these regions. Yeah, well, the book argues that we've never been one America, but rather several Americas. And the difference between those Americas, which have a lot of attributes of nationhood, are all track back to the differences between the rival colonial projects Mm -hmm. that formed on the eastern and southern rims of what's now the United States. You know, that the New England colonies centered around Boston and the Dutch settled area around what's now New York City and the, uh, the Chesapeake Tidewater country settled by the lesser sons of English country gentry and trying to reproduce that sort of, you know, like Downton Abbey in the 17th century kind of uh, approach to society or the Scots Irish settled back country or the Spanish settled Southwest and so on, that these were all completely different societies. They had distinct ethnographic characteristics, religious characteristics, ideas about what kind of society is a good society, uh, different economic models they were pursuing. Some of them belonged to different empires in the case of the Dutch or the French and so on. And even the the, the English and, and later British colonies didn't agree on much of anything and certainly didn't think that they were all engaged in a project that would result in a continent-spanning superpower that they would Mm. all belong to. The country came together, the United States, through an accident of history, right? There was a, a shared threat in the 1770s 
to the way that all of these separate nations, if you will, or regional cultures uh, had governed themselves. They all had their own ways of doing things. And uh, London wanted to centralize and standardize the empire. So they rose up to defend their own ways. Lo and behold, they won. And that meant that they were inside something called the United States. And nobody was quite sure what that was in the 1780s or even after the constitution was written and, and the or like. sometimes even today. And certainly even today <laughs> for precisely those reasons, right? The divides um, between these regions were profound. And even the idea that the United States was a nation state was not clear to anybody, you know, even through the aftermath of the civil war. So the fact that we're fractured into red and blue, well, they say red and blue states, but you really have to look below mm-hmm. the state level because the regional cultures, the settlement patterns of each of them didn't track to state boundaries in many cases. But the, the fact that we're divided in that way should come as no surprise if you realize the, the deep fractures that go back to this balkanized um, settlement and political heritage we have going back to European colonization of the continent. Well, and I think, you know, what you do in American character is use that to help people understand how different regions of the country are really driven by the common good or are really driven by individual liberty. And so it stops being, you know, I know it's called American character, but it stops feeling like everybody there is just terrible or has a character flaw when you start to scratch at the surface and think like, oh, this is really driven by a lot of history and by a lot of culture. I mean, when you talk about the deep South and like sort of the role of oligarchy in that culture, I thought, oh yeah, that's it. That's what we've been, that's what I've been pushing up against my whole life. Yeah. And, and very different from say what I call greater Appalachia, which would Mm -hmm. include, you know, Kentucky, West Virginia, the Southern tiers of the uh, lower great lake States like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, a lot of Missouri, the, you know, the Ozarks, the Texas Hill country, broadly speaking, that's one, um, enormous culture, parts of which we call Southern in quotes, but that, you know, when it comes down to questions of, you know, oligarchy, that's a region that's, the ideology is very much against it, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to lord over us. Right. Whereas you get into the lowlands and the deep South, it's, it was a society organized, you know, for the benefit of the great planters on the top of the society and, and, you know, explicitly so. And the legacies of that heritage going back centuries can be felt in, Certainly in politics, oh yeah, um, in, and and in culture and ideas about you know what what kind of policies you should have on a wide range of issues and yeah it it, it makes for a fracturous uh, federal life, and especially these areas of the country like where I live like where you're you're close enough to feel the input of both like I would definitely say like you know it doesn't feel in Western Kentucky as Appalachian as it does in Eastern Kentucky. It always feels like sort of two different states. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, when I like started to look at all these regions, it's like where I live, you can see the interplay of so many of like that sort of Midwest mentality of the Appalachian, the Scott-Irish, like definitely that's in my ancestry and the Deep South. And it's just when you, again, when you, when you just have words to put around this and history and culture and to sort of sort all that out, it feels less overpowering. It feels less frustrating. I mean, like we were talking about before we started recording, I mean, Texas makes a lot more sense if you realize there are like four regions of culture and geography within the same state. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That Austin's the state capital, but Dallas and Houston and San Antonio are the hubs of three very different places. You know, the Houston and that that lowland area stretching along the Gulf of Mexico was settled via the Deep South as a slave plantation society, whereas, uh, you know, Dallas and the Hill Country was settled in a stream that was greater Appalachian, which had come through from the, you know, the Ozarks and further up, even drawing on, uh, on you know, the area of Kentucky and elsewhere. And then the southern part was settled first as the northernmost fringe and frontier of New Spain's, you know, mm. conquest of the continent. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a deeply divided place in many respects. And you can see that through its history and, uh, and its, uh, you know, political background as well. And where do you feel like you see this play out the most in politics? Because that's what we're really trying to scratch at with some of these house races. I mean, you'll see ads for other part of the country and you feel like, 
Like, who would that appeal to? What are they even talking about? But I think when you can put this framework around it, you realize like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. they're speaking to a long language of individual liberty, or they're speaking to a long history of centering the common good. And I mean, again, even with the pandemic, I think you see that that breakdown. But where else do you see that as you sort of look around our, our political landscape? Absolutely. I mean, that, you know, I argue in American character that, yes, the, the thing ultimately that these regions and Americans have been fighting about and debating since the beginning is what's the best way to create a free society, right? We have this big American experiment in self-government. How do you do that? What does freedom really mean? And there's those two big interpretations that the different regional cultures have uh, different allegiances to. One is that the best way to achieve freedom is to, is to maximize the individual's freedom, personal autonomy, freedom from constraint from the government or anybody else. And that that axiomatically, if the individual is more free and the government's weaker, you know, that that's got to be a good thing, right? And then there's an opposing tradition that says, no, it's about the common good about building and maintaining a free society. And that argument goes, you know, it's like de Tocqueville when he talks about you need to cultivate a Republican citizenry, that, you know, humans lived in tyranny for 5,000 years, and we construct this, this incredible, fragile thing that's a liberal democracy where individuals could imagine being free, but can only exist if you're maintaining all of this infrastructure, social and otherwise, so that people can govern themselves, have the education to do it, have the uh, you know ability to achieve their potential, to have uh, you know investments in schools and roads and you know <laughs> these days you know pre-K programs and libraries and Pell grants and that that's all how you maintain a free society because you're guaranteeing the chance that f- actual freedom isn't an accident of birth, right? But those two interpretations, right? Individual liberty and the common good in policy terms, come in direct conflict. And you name some of them. I mean, many of our most divisive issues on the national stage are an argument about that. You know, gun rights is the most important thing to protect the Second Amendment rights of the gun holder when push comes to shove or the safety and right to, you know, life of everyone else. Whether or not in uh, the face of a a dangerous uh, global pandemic, is the most important thing to protect everyone by you know, imposing, if you have to, mandates on wearing masks or vaccines? Or is it individual liberty and personal freedom, the freedom from the tyranny of the government telling you you have to get vaccinated or you have to wear a mask to protect others, right? That's a classic um, individual liberty common good equation. And you look you know, on all of these indices, if you make a map, and I have, of the <laughs> at a county level, um, you know, what are the vaccination rates now? On, and uh, if you sort that by the regional cultures in American oh. nations, the difference between the common good regional cultures like the Midlands and Yankeedom and what I call the left coast, the, the strip on the Pacific on the ocean side of the mountains in Washington state and Oregon and the northern two thirds of California. I mean, the difference is almost, you know, double, Except. right? The, wow. the most common good oriented regional cultures, which include vast rural areas as well as urban areas. It's not urban rural, mm-hmm. but the, um, the the difference in vaccination rates is almost two to one compared to, say, the deep south or greater Appalachia, where there's that strong individual liberty tradition. And those are the regions where you find governors and other officials fighting against public health advice usually on the grounds that you're you're trampling on people's personal autonomy and individual liberty, and that that's more important than protecting the immunocompromised or children or what have you in the pandemic, which doesn't, you know, in Yankeedom in New England, say that doesn't compute, right? Right. The legacy in New England goes back to the early Puritans, right? A group of Calvinists who thought like the Old Testament Hebrews that they had been charged by, you know, God with a specific mission in the world, a mission they had to do collectively, that their communities and trying to create a more, you know, some kind of Calvinist religious utopia in the New England wilderness, they would be rewarded or punished collectively for whether or not they, you know, followed the program. And when an individual um, is messing with the community's health, that's considered a faux pas. I mean, it was a real faux pas back in the early Puritan times. You get thrown in stock and such. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, today there's still more so than any other region of the country. The areas 
that were founded by the Puritans and that their descendants did the initial colonization of all the way out to Minnesota, we're talking. I mean, this is a, a long colonization drive over subsequent generations. Those regions are also the ones that are most powerfully committed to the public health advice in the pandemic. Go to gun violence. You know, you can map per capita death rates, you know, both suicides and homicides from firearms. It's shocking. I mean, if you sort them by the American nations, you know, the, the per capita death rates, you know, you can loop them together for, you know, for over a decade and average them all out. I mean, you're talking almost, a, you know, an eight or 10 to one per capita wow. difference, again, on a regional basis, right? You know, Northern New England, you know, where I live in greater Appalachia, I mean, I would hazard to think that we probably have at least as many gun owners, right? This is a place with mm -hmm. frontiers like aspect, you know, two thirds of my state, Maine has never been settled. I mean, it's industrial forest land that people hunt in, you know, my school, you know, would have, you know, almost everyone would be absent when I was in high school during wow. deer hunting season. But the idea that, you know, gun owners rights supersede gun safety doesn't compute in Maine, even as it's strongly, you know, about gun ownership and as part of the culture in a way that would, um, that would not at all track in greater Appalachia, I imagine in, in Kentucky and West Virginia and elsewhere. So yeah, profound differences going back to those ideas about how you build a free society and what's most important in that. Now, how is this all still true in, you know, global media environment where we're all bombarded by sort of information, often the same information, often conflicting information, but <laughs> like we have this very globalized media environment. People can move. People move a lot. There's a lot of immigration sort of around the United States within states. And um, we've seen that a lot during the pandemic. And we talk all the time about our nationalized politics, right? I mean, that's sort of what we're trying to chip away at with thinking through these house series is using them to understand small regions of the country much deeper. But like, how come this nationalized environment we live in, especially as media has gotten better and better and better, not erase these regional differences. Yeah, how could that be? We've got mass marketing and mass migration and mass media and mass retailing and people, you know, move around all the time. How could they possibly not, you know, how could these regional cultures and their effects still be with us? How are the blue and red areas not just turning more purple? I mean, the fact is that by any way you measure it, they aren't, right? We're getting on a county level more and more blue and red, right? The number of places that are competitive, be it house districts or individual precincts, has gone down dramatically since the 1970s. So how can that be? Well, part of the answer is that as people move around, the people who are moving, a lot of social scientists have looked at this, tend to resemble politically and ideologically the place they're going to, not the place they're from. Mm. In other words, people are voting with their feet. To some extent, when somebody's like, you know, gosh, the place I grew up in, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, I love it. You know, uh, you know, I feel like people really understand me. I, I'd never live anywhere else. And other people will be like, the place I grew up, everyone has all these unexamined assumptions I think are completely wrong. Right. It drives me absolutely crazy. Why can't they see that X, Y, and Z are totally bogus? If I ever had a chance, if my company said you could move somewhere else, I would move somewhere where people believe like I do. And overall, statistically, that's what people are doing. So that's part of it. Another is that immigration, especially the great definitional immigration waves of the late 19th century cut off in 1924 by the Racially Minded Immigration Act that year. But that massive influx did not arrive and spread across the country evenly. If you map using the census, you know, the census takers, fortunately, in that time period would ask people, are you foreign born or not? And people have crunched the numbers at a county level. What percentage of people, what's the per capita rate of immigrants during that period? We can see them at a county level. And the answer is essentially nobody went to greater Appalachia, the mm. Tidewater, or the Deep South, because all the things they were looking for, if you're, you know, this was generally a European wave of people fleeing feudal-like conditions and looking for an opportunity to have freehold land of their own somewhere on this frontier, all of that stuff was really only available in the Midlands Yankee tracks or, you know, in a city-like way in New Netherlands. So even that created from that definitional period, regions of the country with very few newcomers in the mm. 19th and early 20th century and other places where there was a flood of them. And so that also only increased the gulf and ideas about 
who's an American, who belongs, who's an outsider, how does identity work? And again, it's not on a state boundary level. This is knowing where the actual settlement zones are. It tracks along those uh, almost perfectly. So those those are two parts of it. And culture just has this lasting and powerful hold. I mean, the argument in the book is essentially that people, you know, somebody from Mars could, you know, Martian brothers could arrive. One of them could go to the deep South. One could go to Yankeedom. And you go forward a couple of generations and their grandchildren, you know, yeah, they might know that they're Martian. They might remember that their parents could speak, okay, Martian. And their granddad really was from Mars. But they themselves will have probably intermarried by that point, may not mm. speak any Martian at all. And the dialect of English they speak will probably be regionally tracked. And that essentially, you know, just assimilation like it works anywhere in the world happens here. But you're not assimilating into a American culture, in quotes. You're assimilating into one of these regional cultures. Mm-hmm. So that's why over time, culture tends to win out. Now, this is a long-winded answer, but... In the new media environment of the past five to 10 years, I do think has the ability to maybe start collapsing these regional differences because social media and the algorithms that propel it, now that the public square is now occurring online and can be manipulated by you know, Macedonian troll farms or whatever <laughs> you want, right? we're not getting our, our information and our, our public square and the way we build our political attitudes is no longer linked to geography in any way. Mm. So that, you know, we'll have to see because it's so early, but up until five or 10 years ago, culture won out because you got your attitudes in your public square was located, you know, where you live now yeah. that it's not. And maybe the person informing you is really, you know, works for the FSB in Moscow, or maybe it's somebody trying to sell you a certain kind of widgets who knows that because you subscribe to this magazine and a bunch of other stuff that Google's algorithm knows that Mm -hmm. you're the person to target to buy this widget, but it's no longer linked to place. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And that may play a role in the sort of radicalization of our politics very recently um, may have to do with some of that. Yeah, I wonder if it'll just be an accelerant. But I I mean, I think you're right. You know, culture always wins. And I think that this is such a helpful framework for understanding these different cultures as we move into an election season. And we thank you so much for giving us this tool to think through the different regions of the country as we move forward. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your interest. Thank you so much to Colin for joining Sarah. I'm so bummed that I had to miss that conversation because I was in the throes of COVID, but I loved learning from it and keeping in mind everything we just learned from Colin. Next, we're going to talk about how districts are actually drawn and how representatives are elected. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy by federal law we have 435 members of congress sarah would you like a minute to talk about how you hate that it's dumb it's too few members we have 300 million people and what universe is 435 divided by 300 million representative? I'm bad at math. I am, but not that bad at math. It's dumb. So we've kind of fixed that number despite the fact that our population grows with every census. I we just want to use... say we fixed it legislatively, not in the Constitution. Always worth pointing out. With every census, those 435 seats get allocated among the states based on how the population has shifted. And then all of the states that get more than one seat in the House decide how they're going to draw their congressional districts. There are a number of legal requirements that apply here, and there's like a lot of latitude as well. So we're going to quickly talk through what states have to keep in mind as they draw these districts. So you might have heard the expression, one person, one vote. And that is from the Constitution, which tells us that representatives should be chosen by the people of the several states. And we have a Supreme Court stater telling us that that means that congressional districts within each state should contain approximately equal numbers of people so that as nearly as is practical, one person's vote is worth the same as another person's vote within the state. Now, we don't worry about that across states. That's another beef of mine. But within states, we do. That's why you see in our home state of Kentucky, giant districts on my side of the state in this tiny little district, which contains Louisville, our most populous city. So there are cases where states have had to explain any population deviation from mathematical equality among their districts. And the courts asks whether those deviations are justified based on legitimate state objectives. And if that sounds squishy, that's because constitutional law is often squishy. <laughs> and Supreme Court interpretations, even squishier. Another constitutional consideration for district drawing is the 14th Amendment. Courts have interpreted the 14th Amendment to require essentially that states be very, very, very careful when drawing district lines based on race. Very, very, very careful is not the legal language that is mm -hmm. used in those mm -hmm. cases, but that's Might the well gist be. of it. Yeah. And then we have the Voting Rights Act. This is a legislative requirement, not a constitutional requirement. But the districts have to comply with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. This law prohibits any voting qualification or practice that results in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote based on race, color, or membership in a language minority. And there are lots of aspects of Section 2 in the Voting Rights Act and many, many judicial tests and decisions trying to apply it, scale it, and otherwise shape its impact, including recent Supreme Court precedent that rolls back a lot of the requirements of the Voting Rights Act. I actually was thinking about the Voting Rights Act, Beth, after my conversation with Colin, where we talk about, you know, we're different. And so applying one standard across all these regions is problematic. But I think the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 in particular, sets forth a really good model for how to do that, to say this is what we're applying. But we know that certain parts of the country might have a little 
bit, um, let me be as graceful as possible, bigger cultural and historical barriers to applying this. And so we're going to look at these all individually. We're going to set out some standards. We're going to have people in charge of sort of keeping an eye on, on different regions that might struggle with these requirements. Which is exactly what the Supreme Court has found problematic mm-hmm. because they've said maybe at some point we were all different, but it doesn't feel like we're all different anymore. They need to read Colin Wooder's book. That's what I think. I think so, too. Now, we have laws around gerrymandering, that practice of drawing weird districts for specific purposes that apply to race, language, ethnicity. We do not have federal laws around partisan gerrymandering. In fact, the Supreme Court has said federal courts are not going to get involved in claims of partisan gerrymandering. There is no basis on which we can do that. A variety of bills have been introduced in Congress dealing with partisan gerrymandering. None have passed. States are taking swings at this. This is where you see some nonpartisan commissions trying to draw district lines. And as we're about to talk about, that's like going okay. There are mixed mixed results from that. Mm. So... Based on our recent census results, we're at this pro- we're, we're taking a stab at it again. Every 10 years we take a stab at this process. And so redistricting is going on right now. It's not finished. As of January 14th, 26 states have finished their maps. New York is still working on its second map proposal. Mississippi and Kentucky's legislator have sent maps to the governor for signature. The Ohio Supreme Court has rejected the first attempt at their new maps. And there are lawsuits pending in North Carolina. Uh, Connecticut's bipartisan redistricting commission didn't meet the deadline to approve the map, which kicks the process to the state Supreme Court. Wisconsin's governor vetoed the map passed by the legislator so that it will also go to the court. It's 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 a hot mess. And we have this fun new entrant coming from, oh, wait for it, the state of Florida, as is often the case, often the case, Florida, Florida coming in with something hot, hot and new. Uh, Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Ron DeSantis became the first governor in recent political history to just say, hey, you know what? I have an idea. This is my map. This is what I want the redistricting to look like. He filed it on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day and eliminated two majority black districts. Bold move. I mean, I think he's sort of known for that. Uh, the idea is that he's he's basically saying if the Republican state legislator doesn't submit a map that looks like this, I'm going to veto it. But stepping into the process in this particular way is interesting. Yeah, I'm going to use the word. I'm going to use the word interesting. So, Sarah, I was trying to put together, like, what are my big takeaways after looking at the the shifts that are happening and being contemplated in light of this census? And my headline is, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We are continuing a trajectory of reducing the number of toss-up districts. Every time we embark on this process, we get fewer truly competitive congressional districts. According to the Cook Political Report, which I think is kind of a gold standard Mm -hmm. of people analyzing congressional districts, 14 of 435 districts are truly toss-ups. 538 classifies 21 districts as highly competitive. The second thing I want to say is that neither party grabbed a ton of power from this process. Mm -hmm. Depends on how you look at it. There are a few more solidly blue districts now. Republicans converted some leans right districts to solidly Republican districts. The map slightly favors Democrats, but we still have, on balance, more aggressively Republican gerrymandered districts. Democrats are playing the game a little better now. You've probably read a lot about how Democrats tend to unilaterally disarm in this process, that Republicans gerrymander hard when Democrats have power. They try to go more bipartisan or nonpartisan. Some Democrats said this time, "Eh, we're going to do this too. And some have for many years. There have always been Mm -hmm. districts that are gerrymandered to favor both parties. On balance, Republicans have been more aggressive about this. And then, you know, it still feels and is kind of gross. Like nothing about this feels right as you dive into it. Yeah. You know, I had a macro level anxiety about this because when this process happens, there is always... A lot of incendiary headlines, a lot of incendiary email coming from party activists. This is what they're doing. And some of the things are crappy, like it's not just congressional districts that are getting drawn. State house districts are getting drawn. In Kentucky, they condensed some. Two of them, two of my most favorite female legislators, they condensed their districts. And I just thought, of course you did. Of course you're threatened by them. 
And those state districts are not one person, one vote under federal right. law. They can do right. what they want. It's state law that applies. So in the congressional districts, like, you know, you read all this and I was trying to keep my wits about me. Right. I was just trying to think like, OK, we read this stuff every year. Yes, there are fewer competitive districts, but I was it was very helpful for me to read Matt Iglesias's newsletter where he talked about like when you look overall at the map, Democrats shored up some places, like you said, like kind of abandoned that unilateral disarmament strategy. And so it's not this Republican blowout, which I think this more incendiary headlines and definitely the like political emails you get make you feel like. Now, does that make me feel any better about the really crappy way my district is drawn and the fact that my representative, Jamie Comer, lives in Frankfurt, which is hours away and like totally disconnected from our region of the state. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't make me feel any better. But back to my f- first point, to me, like the issue is less about partisan gerrymandering. Although, would I love everybody to move to nonpartisan districts? Of course. Although, must be noted in Michigan, the nonpartisan Redistricting Commission eliminated a historically black district. And there is a lot of angry people who said like, well, yeah, this sounds great, but they're not making the sort of they're not taking into into account uh, majority minority districts in a way that is important for representation. And so it's not like these nonpartisan districts are without issue. But what I mean, I would I love those. Yes. But what I think is so stupid is that our country gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're sorting these same 435 districts out. We'll take from Michigan, and we'll give to California. We'll take from here, and we'll give to Texas. It's just so stupid. It's a number we made up to fit the room in the 1920s. And the fact that we continue to do this is, to me, fundamental to our partisanship, to our polarization, to the fact that the people— feel like the system doesn't represent them, that it's rigged, whatever language you want to use, they're not wrong. This representation sucks. You don't feel represented when your congressperson has, you know, anywhere from several hundred thousand to they think it'll be up to a million constituents soon. Like, it's just, it's so dumb that we keep, you know, divvying out these same 435 districts and expect it to be a fair process where people feel like democracy is flourishing. The point from that Matt Iglesias piece that hit me the hardest was that the problem with gerrymandering is not unfairness to political parties. It is unfairness to voters. Mm-hmm. And here's what he said that I just I loved. He said, in sociocultural terms, I think these practices undermine the national fabric by creating an exaggerated sense of mm-hmm. national polarization, the fact that there are about 500,000 Trump voters in Chicago and about 500,000 Biden voters in Utah is a relevant fact about American society that deserves to be made more salient so that people understand more clearly and vividly that opposite party voters are members of their community mm-hmm. and not people living somewhere else to be eliminated. I think that is it. Yep. Because if you look at these maps, yeah, we're extremely polarized. And these maps are meant to do that, yep. not to actually reflect what's going on in a certain census block. And I can't help but remember our conversation surrounding January 6th, where we talked about how many of the insurrectionists didn't come from Trump majority districts. They came from Biden districts. And I think that's probably a little bit of why it's not that I'm sympathetic, but there's a part of that that connects with me because I live in a place where I don't get represented regularly. It's terrible. It is not a great feeling. It makes you feel angry. It makes you feel disconnected. It makes you feel invisible. Because there are people, it's not this, you know, easy pie. It's why Barack Obama's speech so many years ago where we, you know, we play, we go to church in blue states and we love our gay friends in red states connected with people because they were like, yeah, that's not my lived experience. You can't divide up the lines like this in a way that human beings always fit neatly within. You just make them feel ignored. And I think it's, that's why I really connect with Collins' work, because I think talking about the cultural connection is so important. And he made a really good point after we wrapped our previous conversation that I want to play here about gerrymandering and how often gerrymandering is slicing up these cultural contexts. 
You'll notice very quickly when dealing with house districts that a lot of them straddle these regional cultural lines. Oh. And that's that's no accident, right? If you're gerrymandering stuff, you want to, let's say you're a Republican and you want to, or you're a Democrat, you gerrymander in different ways, but you want to gerrymander up the Western Reserve of Ohio, where, which is the Yankee zone, which votes democratically, you're not going to give it districts that are horizontal along the lake. You're going right. to cut them in spaghetti lots, um, either advantageously or disadvantageously to Cleveland and surroundings, um, depending on which party you're in. But you'll see that a lot. You'll see the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas, where I've lived for a year and a half, you know, Brownsville on, you know, all that whole strip at the very southern end of Texas is a cohesive cultural zone, but you'll see that many of the house districts are cut as crazy spaghetti lots north to south so that you can strand Democratic voters in the Rio Grande Valley in areas that are slightly a majority district because you're pulling in deep southern, you know, Corpus Christi and surroundings or whatnot. So, I mean, you'll see all around the country, you'll see a lot of uh, gerrymandering often results uh, in, in building house districts that across these regional cultural uh, areas. Well, that was going to be my question. I'm like, wait, do some of these gerrymandered districts actually follow the sort of cultural context that you're saying? No, they're splitting them up on purpose. Yeah, well, most, uh, you know, most uh, if gerrymandering by definition, right, they're trying to gain political advantage in the way they draw the districts. But if you're doing that, you, you probably haven't read American Nations, but mm. just using all of the other metrics you're looking for to find partisan advantage almost always is going to find you drawing across these regional cultural lines because the culture has so much effect on political behavior. Right. So, um, yeah, so that will, you'll find a lot of uh, districts are hacked up in that way in various regions of the country. Less so maybe in states that have a commission system and don't, Mm -hmm. in effect, don't allow gerrymandering or make it harder. Um, You'll find less of that because they tend to be more culturally cohesive, but in in the majority of states where it's done to partisan advantage by one party or the other, you'll see the district will not be uh, an El Norte district. It'll be an El Norte slash Deep South district. Yeah. Right, right. So there are better ways to do this. We could spend many, many episodes on ways that we could do a better job drawing districts, how we could prioritize different factors in drawing those districts, how we could vote differently. But right now, these are the maps that we have. <laughs> And so the question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to approach these elections? And what Sarah and I have been talking about is trying to think extremely locally, because that is the goal of the system. The House of Representatives, much more than any other federal office, is meant to allow people to feel represented based on what is happening where they live. So we want to talk to candidates from those regions that Colin and Sarah discussed about their districts, not about their campaigns, about the districts. How has COVID impacted the district? What major industry is in the district and how are things going with that industry? What resources does the district have in abundance or desperately need? So between now and the election, those are the kinds of conversations you're going to hear a couple of times a month here. And just to be really explicit, because this time of year, we start to hear from candidates or people saying, please interview so-and-so who's running in my state. We love that. Please send people our way. And please understand that what we want to talk about is what's happening on the ground there. We, we so admire people who run for office and appreciate what they do and what they're going for in interviews. What we really want to connect with people about is the understanding of that local community, not how they feel about Build Back Better or those nationalized kind of culture war issues. Because I think what appeals to me about these regions is not to further to divide us to just say like, well, we're just these different countries and that's it. But just to remind us what a big lift multicultural democracy is to just remind us that there's a lot of history and culture and geography and a million other factors tied up in how somebody reacts to a vaccine mandate or how a region of the country reacts to a vaccine mandate. It's not about the district lines. It's about so much more than that. And often it is candidates who are on the ground experiencing those perspectives day after day, listening to people's stories, meeting business owners who have a really good window into how all those factors come into play. I definitely learned 
more than I had in my entire life during my campaign when I knocked on all those doors and and saw those sort of historical factors play out as I listened to people and asked for their vote and shared my sort of policy ideas. And so I, I'm really excited to to talk to the candidates to help us understand our country in more depth. I loved hearing Colin talk about how social media is shrinking the public square and weakening those regional differences, because that feels like an infant stage of that tool to me, much in the way that conversations about race in America in the infant stage sounded like, well, we don't see color, Mm. right? And as that conversation has evolved, people are saying, no, that's not what we're going for at all. We absolutely want to see community differences, cultural differences. We want to celebrate different heritages and different perspectives and and the value of multiculturalism. And so I hope that politically in that public square and otherwise, we can do the same thing around our, our maps and our representatives to say, no, I like really value that you are coming from a completely different district than mine and you bring this different perspective and we shouldn't be flattening everything out to which caucus you vote with. So we are going to continue those conversations. We're going to start with a candidate in the greater Appalachia region and keep working our way around the country. Please do send us any suggestions that you have. And next up, uh, we'll just talk a little bit about how COVID is the weirdest. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. 
It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So, Beth, the people want to know how you're doing. Doing pretty well. I feel um, lucky that my experience has been as um, smooth as it has been compared to the alternatives. At the same time, I'll tell you, it's very perspective inducing to think to myself, I have three vaccines and this is rough. Mm -hmm. Um, And just to understand it puts mild in greater context. <laughs> I was fixing to say, you're not feeling the mild nature of Omicron. It, it puts mild in greater context for me, for sure. I'm really tired. I feel like I have a migraine all the time. I got a lot of kind of pain around my torso, but I'm doing better. My brain still feels like scrambled eggs. I'm working on it. That scrambled eggs brain is what I wanted to talk to you about because um, a couple of factors influenced my television watching this last week. I needed something I didn't care about a whole lot so that I could come in and out of consciousness because basically all I did for five days was sleep and lay in bed and text people in my house to say, would you please bring me some more ice? (laughs) So I needed something I wasn't super invested in. I needed something that wasn't complex. I needed something that Chad and I don't watch together. And I settled on two types of entertainment. One was shows about cheating in sports which I really enjoyed. Mm, it's the kind of, sports documentary. kind of energy that I was really looking for. And then the other is um, called Ink Masters. It is a competition reality show about tattoo artists. Oh, that is not what I expected. You I say. know. I, I just want to I want to tell you a little bit about it. First of all, it is hosted by Dave Navarro. Now, First important no- note, neither you nor I have tattoos. No tattoos here. Yeah. If there were ever a human to fully embody the darkness and the randomness and the tenacity of COVID, I think it's Dave Navarro. <laughs> I think he's the perfect I human. I can't tell if you're complimenting him or not. I can't really either. But <laughs> I like him. I enjoyed seeing him on my television for hours and hours. Here's what I really have been wanting to ask you. So these tattoo artists are competing and they're tattooing real people. And they call the people they bring in, wait for it, the human canvases. No. I want to know. If there is any version of being a human canvas that you could get on board for. Yeah, like paint, like body paint. Sure. I would even, listen, truthfully, I would even be like a nude model for an art class because I have no, very little modesty, almost no modesty. Like I don't like dress immodestly, not for any like moral reasons, just because no, but I don't have any modesty really. So I could do that. But like, a human canvas for something permanent? That's a no for me. That's a no. The permanent state is what gets me to I would not go for that. The one thing I settled on is I think that I could, like, lie on a table and let people put appetizers on me. You know, okay. like cover me in fruit or something. I think I'd be a human canvas in that way. That's about it. Okay. So if you already have a tattoo, I don't know how this show would go for you. I think it's possible that you would start to look at your tattoo and be like, oh, my God, this line work is terrible. Like, you know what so I mean? Wait, have the, the critiques are, are so showing fine. up to get tattooed. Do they have tattoos or this is their first tattoo? They are all they're very tattooed. OK, because that's what I that's what I think. I think like being a human canvas when it's your first tattoo is a whole different ballgame totally. than if you you're like got a sleeve. Then what's another tattoo? Who cares? Now, there was a very fascinating episode where people came for facial tattoos. No. And one of the tattoo artists is very strongly against facial tattoos and doesn't oh. do them at home. Okay. And, like, had this whole conversation. He only did it because this person already had tattoos on their face. Why is like, it, What is his opposition to face tattoos? I'm here for this Just that you can never cover them up. And yes. he just feels like that's a, that is too much of a life-changing decision yeah. for someone. And that they're, they're hard to remove. And, like, he's just like, I just think it's unethical. I don't I don't do it. People got tattoos on their heads. People got Mm -hmm. tattoos on their eyelids. That has to hurt so badly. Well, this is the other thing. If you have ever been tattoo curious, which, look, I know a lot of white ladies my age who grew up in Baptist churches are very tattoo curious. (laughs) 
I think this will cure you of it because one, (laughs) you see how intricate the work is. And these are like the people at the top of their field and they still get these critiques about the screw ups and how things are going to age over time. That's interesting. And like they talk about different forms of skin being really hard to work on if you have scar tissue, if you have wrinkles. So like I think and that will just cure you of the desire to do anything permanent to yourself. The other thing, though, is like they show these people getting this work done and it looks excruciating, even oh. for folks who have many, many, many tattoos. At the same Amos time. Amos is tattoo curious. I'm going to make him watch the show. It made me like interested in temporary tattoos because some of them are yeah. beautiful. It's amazing what they I used can to love do. henna. I was yeah. all about henna in college. I mean, it's gorgeous. Now, there are like weird moments about cultural appropriation that are definitely not addressed on this show that's hosted mm. by Dave Navarro and sponsored by Taco Bell. Poetic. What? But they don't really discuss, like, should you be getting an Asian tattoo? Like, does this make sense? There are, there are questions to explore, but I'm just telling you, it was like the perfect level. I could go to sleep. It didn't matter. I didn't like any of the people. This is the opposite of, like, Ted Lasso viewing. Everybody's pissed off constantly. They have the shortest fuses. They are, like, going for the jugular the whole time. But it was the right energy for a sick person. That is hilarious. Yeah, my when I tell my boys about tattoos, like, why I don't have one, and it's, I say, like, I'm a curious person who really prioritizes self-growth, self-awareness, and, like, change. And so there's not really a point in my life that I want to mark permanently because I always want to be developing. Now, I Nicholas and I got very close to getting tattoos one time. And I think I would—I've I, thought a lot about this, and I think if I was to mark ever, anything permanent that I feel like will never change, it might be the state of Kentucky because I will forever and always be a Kentuckian. And I'm also, like, an eighth-generation Kentuckian. But that's that's it to me. Like, I don't want to commit to something because what if I'd—what if 18-year-old super Baptist Sarah had gotten a tattoo like I wanted to? And so my grandmother shamed me and said, no, ma'am. What if I had? Then I'd be, like, marked permanently with this person I'm no longer anywhere close to being. That's kind of my thing on tattoos. Personally, I don't really care about anybody. This is a very, I have strong opinions and care. Not at all. If you have a tattoo, go for it. Seen beautiful tattoos. My friend Dave has the freaking coolest tattoo from this artist. Like you don't even get to approve. You just get to show up and he does it. It's so freaking cool. That's just personally where I'm at on tattoos. Yeah, I actually love seeing other people's tattoos. Mm -hmm. Like especially people who have sleeves. I think they're beautiful and interesting. And I cannot commit to a wall color. And so I'm just not going to be able to choose for myself something that I really want to ride with for the rest of my days. And I like look at my skin and see how much it's changed between 30 and 40. And I'm just not going to make assumptions about what it it does next. But the artistry of this is incredible. I mean, what these people can draw and the fact that they can draw it on skin with like is not amazing. a pencil that they can erase. Yeah. And also Banana. this show is so wacky and that's perfect for COVID. Like this one guy came in and he said, I want you to make it look like a zombie, like bit the back of my head. And I thought, yeah, why not do that? <laughs> it's 2022. Do it. Why would you not want a zombie to bite the back of your head off? That's great. You go for it, friend. That sounds Live about your best right. Life. That's right. <laughs> have the best tattoo available to you. Right. That so, I feel very strongly about. Just yes. have the best tattoo available to you. That's right. And if you get sick, just spend some time with Dave. He is there for you. There are three seasons of Ink Master. They're all on Netflix. Again, every episode he tells you that Taco Bell is sponsoring. It feels so good. It's just, it's just. <laughs> It's just perfect. I could not have been in a more different space than you this weekend as far as entertainment. I read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice while listening to Regency music. I watched Denzel Washington and Macbeth and finished Station Eleven. So it's a very different vibe. Very different vibe. One degree of connection with you. I watched Denzel Washington in the Pelican Brief. The Pelican. I've watched that in forever. I hadn't either. And just suddenly it popped into my mind. That's what I want right now because I know what happens. I can fall asleep and it doesn't matter. Right. And I I do love Julia Roberts and her hair. I really strongly connect with her hair in that movie. She had some good hair. You don't don't get full Julia Roberts hair as much as she used to. That's a shame. We've lost something in that. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you all were here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Colin Woodard, again, who I bet did not expect to be mentioned in an episode with Ink Master. (laughs) (laughs) We should maybe, like, work on our language when we invite people onto the show just to let them know the range of things. We'll be back here with you again on Friday. You don't have to wait very long this week to talk about one year of the Biden administration. Until then, have the best week available to you.
Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.